The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer. And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. Well, welcome, family. I love that song. I love that song. I really, really do. We haven't really uh, talked about uh, who that is singing there. Chris, why don't you tell us? All right, that's uh, Roy Buchanan. Uh, Roy Buchanan, I'm a huge music fan, Monty. Uh, I I was a guitarist for many, many years, and uh, the guitar as an instrument has fascinated me. And Roy Buchanan is one of those greats who came out of the late 60s, uh, a blues player, but could also do incredibly strong guitar rock and roll. Uh, he was, um, you know, I'll, I'll take some license here and basically paint him as, uh, as an alcoholic. I believe, uh, I believe he was. And there were periods, of his to- uh, periods during his recording career where he sobered up. And uh, that particular cut uh, uh, is called Man on the Floor. Uh, I'm not that man anymore is basically the way the, the chorus goes. And it, it's from an album called A Street Called Straight. And I believe it was written during one of his periods of sobriety. Unfortunately, he, uh, he later relapsed and uh, during uh, an arrest uh, for a DUI ended up uh, dead in jail. Uh, so we lost uh, we lost another uh, another alcoholic and a and a great musician. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, directly as a result of alcoholism, I believe. Sure, sure. Well, he goes on uh, <laughs> in the form of the theme song for Walking Through the Big Book. So we're we're grateful. Um, uh, before we start the show today, I want to give a plug for the twenty second annual Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. This, uh, folks, will be September tenth through the thirteenth of this year, and uh, it, it's going to be uh, well. Of course, it's going to be in Cape Cod. I'm being redundant there. Chris, can you tell the listeners a little bit of what this is and the size of this thing? Well, I, you know, I personally think it's the best addictions conference uh, in America. Uh, and it's every September in Cape Cod, and they just have the, the, the greatest series of speakers there. Uh, there's probably 30 or 40 uh, different people uh, talking on different topics, and it's a great place if you're in the uh, addictions field to get continuing credit. It's a great place to learn about, you know, what are the best practices, uh, what, what are, what's some of the, the latest and greatest uh, techniques and information available in uh, in uh, professional addictions and alcoholism treatment. It's run by a wonderful woman named Dee McGraw who does a great job with it. She she works like crazy all year to make sure uh, that this is uh, this is incredibly special. And you and I will be there. 
you know, we'll, we'll have yes. an opportunity to uh, to record some people to to do some shows with some some really extraordinary individuals. So I am definitely looking forward to it. It's, it's something anyone uh, who really uh, really wants to know what the heck is going on. Uh, you know, what are the professionals doing uh, for us and and uh, and and with us? Uh, it's a great place to to, to find out. And, and uh, once again, September 10th through the 13th, the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. And we've got a link to it uh, on our, our website, and Chris does too on uh, Afflicted and Affected if you want more information. And if you see a couple guys running around with microphones, don't run away. We may, talk to, <laughs> yeah. we may just talk to you. So, <laughs> All right, today on Walking Through the Big Book, where are we at in this big book, Chris? All right, uh, last week we... We started on the doctor's opinion, and we're going to we're going to finish uh, the doctor's opinion this week. But William D. Silkworth, um, chief physician at Towns Hospital, was asked by Bill Wilson uh, to to give a medical estimate. Now uh, he worked pretty closely with Bill because when Bill uh, sobered up, he went back to find prospects. He he understood intuitively that he needed to pass this on to try to help other alcoholics uh, stay sober. He just had that feeling. And so what, what he would do is he, he would go back and uh, through Dr. Silkworth, he would get, he would find prospects, people to talk to about his, uh, um, about his recovery, uh, uh, transformational recovery experience. So after uh, Dr. Silkworth uh, witnessed uh, a number of what he would describe as wholesale miracles, uh, uh, people that Bill was working with that were uh, of the hopeless variety uh, actually get sober and move on with their, li- their lives, um, Dr. Silkworth was, uh, was willing to, to write this letter. He wasn't willing to sign his name to it uh, right at that point in time, but he was willing to write the letter and witness, uh, witness to what was going on, what, what Bill was involved with and what was happening with these um, uh, what would what would have been in his estimate hopeless alcoholics actually getting sober and, and getting their lives back together. So I'm going to start up. Uh, this is from a fourth edition. This is page XXVII. And this is the second part of, uh, of the letter or the continuation of the letter or however you want to look at it. It, it actually was edited up a, a little bit by Bill Wilson for presentation in this book. You can go to I think I think the website is silkworth.net if you want to find out more about um, Dr. Silkworth. Okay. The subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. So th- this guy really was at the top of his field. There was not a lot of professional uh, treatment going on uh, for uh, alcoholism and drug addiction. Uh, but in some of the large metropolitan areas, there would be enough of a market for it that you could, you could set one up as a business. Remember, normal hospitals were loath to treat alcoholics and drug addicts. They, yeah. <laughs> they just didn't see that it was uh, anything but a waste of their time. And it's not that much different today. At least they tolerate us, but you do get the, the nasty looks. Uh, you know, I've had, I've had a lot of experience bringing uh, bringing people to uh, to get detoxed, and even the places that are specifically for detox try to find a way to not admit you. You know, they're, they're looking for a loophole to send you back out in the car and, and to get rid of you. 
Um, you know, so that, that's even the places that, that really uh, are specifically designed uh, for detoxing. You know, uh, the, the alcoholic and the addict are, are not pretty at, at their chronic uh, um, stages where, you know, they, they need treatment. They're, they're argumentative. They're, they're delusional. Uh, they're not trustworthy. They can be dangerous. Uh, they're they're certainly uh, not the type of uh, people you want to be hanging out with if you're like an admissions uh, professional at one of these places. So you know uh, they're seeing they're seeing the illness at, in its worst acts aspect. So the fact that you know Silkworth was uh, was heading up a clinical team of a hospital, you know, back in the '30s. Uh, uh, that puts him at the top of the pyramid as far as understanding, at least at the 1930s level, understanding alcoholism and drug addiction. So, so uh, a medical estimate coming from this individual should really be uh, seen as uh, as a, a testimony to uh, what the book Alcoholics Anonymous is about, what Bill Wilson and and uh, the first 100 or so were about. So it's extraordinary that he got a professional doctor who's, who treats alcoholism to basically say this guy with his Oxford group uh, uh, processes is having much better luck than we scientists are. You know, it's amazing that uh, he was able to, to pull that out of the guy. But um, Tilkworth being, uh, being a very moral uh, man, uh, uh, being honest and compassionate, if he saw something that was working, you know, the heck with uh, his professional perspective. Let's let's highlight this. Let's let's let people know about it because he he was just seeing too many people die. You know, he saw maybe twenty thousand alcoholics or something like that. I don't know how many, and you know, most of them were what he would describe as a hopeless alcoholic. So it's it, it's almost like a doctor today treating stage four cancers. You know, it, mm -hmm. it must get pretty grim after a while. Uh, because you just know that there's only a, a fraction of a hope for most of the people. Right. There was, uh, there was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We, I'm going to read this paragraph the way he wrote it, and then I'm going to change it around and read it with basically a spiritual perspective. Okay. Because I didn't understand this paragraph until someone did that with me. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Okay. Now let me read this from a spiritual perspective. All right. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of spiritual awakening was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of God that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. When someone read it to me that way, I understood that... Going to the hospital is not the place where you're uh, you're you're going to be in the most uh, conducive atmosphere for a spiritual awakening and a consciousness of God. 
not something that they have on the fourth floor. Right. Our pa- our pastor always says it. He say he says you don't come to me for me to set your cast for your broken leg, and you don't go to the doctor to get your faith built up or get a relationship with God. So you know what he was basically saying was the thing that seems to work most the spiritual awakening the consciousness of God, is outside of our synthetic knowledge. We're not well equipped to apply those powers. We're a medical institution. Now, uh, now, certainly, I would never be someone who would say that treatment for the alcoholic is a bad thing. Right. How I see treatment today, because I, uh, you know, what I do for a living, basically, is um, uh, I interact with many of the, the top treatment people in the country how i view it is is there's a continuum and you go from active alcoholism to permanent long-term satisfying recovery okay and there's a continuum that starts at one end and goes to the other treatment is a place a very very valid place on that continuum usually in the very beginning of one's process through that continuum so many of us i included needed uh, to be exposed to treatment. Sometimes it's a good idea. They believed back in the beginning it was a good idea to expose people to professional treatment, even if they didn't need it, just so that they understood this is a medical problem. It's a, it's a spiritual, physical, um, uh, uh, mental problem. And sometimes it requires professional treatment to stabilize you so you can jump onto the continuum that will lead you to a permanent, satisfied, um, you know, a, a recovery with quality in your life. So uh, I am not someone who uh, who bashes treatment. You, you hear that you hear that bashed in different circles, and and uh, I'm not yeah. the one to do that because I've met so many of these people, and uh, the best people in the field get it. They get it. They understand that the spiritual solution is ultimately what is going to change someone's life. Mm-hmm. They just also understand that without, uh, without uh, some stabilization, they're not going to be able to fit into that continuum. <coughs> Does that make any sense? That makes absolute sense. <laughs> Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. This, of course, was Bill Wilson. More about this in his story, so I won't get into it now. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgivings, we consented. I love that. Most treatment centers today go after people in Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, and they want those 12-step meetings in their facility. They realize how valid they are and how important they are. But back then... You know, Bill was coming to him basically saying, you know, I've, I've found religion is basically what he was saying. And, you know, this is going to back the back up the medical professionals. They're, they're not going to really feel comfortable with that. But the fact was that there were so many transformational recoveries that happened with the people Bill was working with that he had some misgivings. But basically, uh, basically he consented. Mm-hmm. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men, as we have come to know them, 
the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. This power, remember, is something that's outside of his synthetic knowledge, and with his ultra-modern standards and scientific approach, he was not well equipped to apply. So again, the amazing thing is he supported this. Now, you know, a lot of, a lot of doctors are unwilling to operate outside of their synthetic knowledge. Uh, it's it's one of those it's one of those seconds and inches moments in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous where the right person was there at the right time. Yeah. Of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. Now, the physical craving for liquor this is described in a few more paragraphs, but basically what it is is when there's alcohol in an alcoholic system, it creates the phenomenon of craving. And what that is is it's an almost overwhelming physiological desire to have more alcohol. Why, did, why do alcoholics get so drunk they can't, they can't even operate their own pants zipper? Okay, why does that happen? It happens because of the phenomenon of craving. One drink always asks for the second, the second demands the third, the third insists on the fourth, and by the time the alcoholic has his 12th drink, he wants that more than he wanted his 11th drink. Because the more alcohol in an alcoholic's body, the stronger the physical craving. So to pull somebody away from that, sometimes you need to medicate them. Right. And, exactly. and we yeah. still do. Yeah. We yeah. still do. I think it's a bad idea for anybody that tries to just tell somebody to quit who's like a real chronic alcoholic, just stop. Mm-hmm. So many times the alcoholics die um, uh, from convulsions or yeah. uh, or cardiopulmonary uh, uh, problems that uh, it's really, really, or strokes, you know, it's really, really bad. Uh, so most of the time, um, if there's no other option, take somebody to the ER. Okay, that's what I'll tell people. If you can't find a detox or you can't find a rehab, uh, take them to the ER, and, and at the very least, they'll monitor their, their their blood pressure and make sure that they're medicated so that uh, so that they're not going to stroke out. Now, let, let me ask you this: uh, I I've heard some people say over the years, um, I even in my sobriety, I feel like I have the phenomenon of craving once in a while. Don't, do you think that's different than what we're talking about? I do. Do you think well, so? I, I try to define things with, um, with, with the, the word definitions that you, that you come to an understanding of from the big book. Uh-huh. I think words have changed over the years, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of people that use a lot of words not, not understanding that, that they had different meanings back in the day. The craving for liquor only happened with alcohol in your body. If, if you're obsessing uh, about a drink, that's a whole different thing. Okay. And another thing is they talk about the obsession of the mind. I believe if the obsession of the mind hits you and there's alcohol available somewhere that you can get your hands on, you're already committed. You're already drinking. Mm-hmm. 
So you'll hear a lot of people saying, you know, I have an obsession to drink. I, you know, for the first three years, I had an obsession to drink. Well, they're using the wrong word. Because in this book, uh, an obsession of the mind is not overcomable by willpower. Okay. If, if the obsession hits you, you cannot talk yourself out of it uh, or use a trick or a tool uh, to stop from going to the liquor store. You're on your way. So I like to, I like to use uh, the words in the way that the big book uses them. Uh, that's just me. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's my, mm-hmm. my preference. I mean, anybody can say anything they want to say whenever they want to say it. Uh, I just I try to be clear uh, because my understanding... Uh, my basic understanding, the, the foundation that that, uh, the, that I've built my recovery understanding on comes from this book. Well, and you know, this explains why, and my mom used to always say it, well, you, you were on your way up to Portland to get drugs. I mean, you could have stopped at any time, turned around, and came back. And I tried to tell her, and she goes, why didn't you? And I'd say, I don't know. Well, that explains it. You know, the, the chapter after uh, Bill's story, uh, more about alcoholism, goes into that. And, you know, we're going to be talking at length uh, about that, uh, that specific issue. Great. It's, it's probably the most misunderstood um, piece of alcoholism. Because if you haven't experienced an obsession of the mind, then it's very, very difficult to understand it. Now, I, I swore off alcohol a hundred times. I would swear it off in the morning and be drunk in the afternoon. Now, I meant it in the morning. And if you would have hooked me up to a lie detector, uh, the, the polygraph expert would have said, this guy's never going to drink again. He really means it. But what would happen is uh, is the obsession would overcome me mm-hmm. sometime during the day, and, and I was on my way to a liquor store late that afternoon. And there was nothing I could really do about it. And, and that's what people misunderstand. They really think that it's a lack of willpower. They think that, that people are weak, that they're just, uh, they're just morally depraved. That's not the case at all. They, they don't have power, choice, and control over going to the liquor store. It's not available to them. Yeah. And, and, and many, many people, uh, even in recovery, don't understand this. Uh, because they, because maybe they've come in before they've quite become alcoholic. You know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, information in these chapters that talk about the potential alcoholic or, you know, the heavy drinker. There's a lot of people that, that show up in uh, 12-step recovery programs who, who, who are not really alcoholic. Uh, they, they still have power, choice, and control and wonder why the hell Harry over there relapses every day. You know, right? Uh, they they just don't they don't understand what what this book is saying. This, this book is painting a very very bleak picture uh, as far as um, uh, as the alcoholic is concerned. But after that bleak picture, they paint a very very uh, um, optimistic solution. So that's that's what's really uh, really great about this book. We believe in so suggested a few years ago. But the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Okay. Two things. Um, a lot of people will misunderstand the allergy. They'll think, well, I, you know, I don't break out in hives when I drink. An allergy is just uh, an abnormal reaction to a food or a beverage. Okay. Or mm-hmm. a thing or whatever. Uh, the unnatural, the, the abnormal reaction uh, that the alcoholic has is the phenomenon of craving. 
what happens is they don't break out in a rash. They break out in a craving. And it's a strong physiological craving to put more alcohol in their body. This only happens with the allergic type, is what Selkhorst is saying. The allergic type is the alcoholic. Aunt Fanny and Uncle Fudd, Monty, can have two glasses of wine and then relax. They don't have to close the bar. They are not allergic to alcohol. The people who are allergic or alcoholic start drinking, Mm -hmm. the motors get turning, and they close the bar. And they usually end up finishing their drunk by passing out somewhere. That's basically what he's what he's saying. Here. Yeah, these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. And this is saying a number of things. They cannot use alcohol. <coughs> oh, <coughs> excuse me. Safely use alcohol in any form at all. Um, I be- I believe that. I believe that once. Uh, the alcoholic craving has manifested in an alcoholic. They can stay away from booze for 20 years, and if they pick it up, it'll it'll be it'll be just right back right back where they left it. Uh, picture smoking. Okay, there's a number of number of people that would understand this when it's related to smoking. Let's say you haven't smoked for 10 years, and you just you just decide, ah, the heck with it, I'm going to have a cigarette. And a week later, you're back to a pack a day. What you've done is you've activated those nicotine receptors. They remember. They remember how to operate from when you were last smoking. The same kind of thing happens with uh, with with uh, with, uh, the the receptors uh, that uh, uh, the endorphin or what. I'm not a scientist, but the same type of uh, reaction happens with with alcohol. Uh, once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, what he, what he says there is self-confidence is basically being able to control your drinking, being, being you know, saying, okay, I'm going to have three tonight, and that's it. Well, if, if you say you're going to have three and end up having 20, you've lost your self-confidence. You can't be confident that you can control your, uh, your drinking. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, the reliance upon things human, and that's basically human power. The problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. That talks a little bit about the after the dash in step one, that our lives had become unmanageable. What happens with, with alcoholism is there's always problems uh, that pile up on you when you become alcoholic and when you're headed down the scale. You, your personal relationships are screwed up. Your ability to show up on, you know, uh, where you need to, the way you need to show up, is affected. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of things happen to your ability to cope and deal, and uh, and he he notices this too from the people that he treats. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. Monty, did every did anybody ever beg you? You know, Monty, will you please stop drinking? Oh yes. <laughs> and how and how helpful was that? Uh, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. I, you know, I I understand. I understand your pain is what kind of I always thought. You know, I understand. I'm just you know breaking your heart and everything else, but it's not gonna. It's not gonna stop. I'm not gonna stop so, drinking. Your wife is so wonderful. Wouldn't you? Why are you doing this to her? Why Why don't you quit for her? Yeah. And, and questions like that. It's not like we don't understand them. It's that they go through us. There, there's no way to internalize that. It, it goes. At, 
goes in conflict with uh, with with our obsession for alcohol, mm-hmm. which has nothing to do with our our feeling of moral obligation. I mean, I, I'm, yeah, okay, I will, I will quit. I yeah, there's the I again. I promise. I promise. I won't <laughs> drink again. I know. <laughs> the message that can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. Okay. Uh, one of the things that he found that Bill Wilson had was he had a message of depth and weight. He basically came in and said, I know how you feel. I was, I was, you know, I have gone through everything you're going through and I found a way out. You know, would, would you like to hear about the way out? You know, that's a message of depth and weight. Someone just screaming at you, you know, to stop drinking is, has little effect. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. They learned this early on, that if we could have straightened out our lives on our own, Monty, wouldn't mm-hmm. we have done it by now? Absolutely. We're not stupid, you know what I mean? Yeah. We're doing stupid things, but we're not stupid. We're not bad people, but we're, you know, we're doing bad things. So there's got to be something wrong. There's, a, there, there's, there's lack of power choice control going on somewhere absolutely yeah i went when i wanted there was a time i wanted to quit i wanted more than anything and it just wasn't going to happen it just didn't happen one of the things that uh carl young uh, tr- uh transmitted to bill wilson during the carl young bill wilson letters mm-hmm. was he said that he said basically to uh to Abby thatcher that he had never seen a hopeless alcoholic recover except in rare instances where they had a religious conversion experience. Mm-hmm. It had to be so fundamentally at depth transformational that the person's attitude and outlook had to just be shifted. Uh, the way they behave, the way they think, had to be on a new level, uh, a whole different, a whole different platform. And uh, Carl Jung had seen a few alcoholics recover who that had happened to. And he said he said basically to Roland Hazard, uh, who who was one of the early Oxford Group members, that that's basically what you need to look for if you if you want to survive alcoholism. Yeah. So so uh, so that's part of our early history too. Uh, if I get a chance to, I will I'll talk about that at length also. All right. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we pre- we appear somewhat sentimental. Let them stand with us a while on the firing line, see the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems be a part of their daily work and even their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder why we have accepted and encouraged this movement. He's basically apologizing for uh, talking about a spiritual solution when he's a, a doctor. He's a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Okay? He, he's saying the reason I'm doing this is because it's, it, it's taking up part of my sleeping moment, the tragedy that I'm seeing. I'm seeing, I'm seeing families blown apart. Yes, I'm, I'm willing to encourage anything that will help. You know, so this, again, uh, really speaks to the morality of, uh, of our, our friend Dr. Silkworth. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of, the, of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. That's saying a lot, too. Remember, he spent years working with these alcoholics, and he's basically saying he's found nothing that's contributed more than Bill Wilson and his, his uh, loosely banded uh, group of Oxford Group drunks. 
men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Uh, alcoholics especially like the effect. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I wasn't a big fan of the taste of Canadian whiskey. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but you drink a big glass of Canadian whiskey, and that you know that's a chore. I mean, you have to you have to make a commitment to down that glass. Uh, so I was looking for the effect. I, you know, uh, some people will say I love the taste of beer. I I just love the taste of scotch, and that may or may not be true. But I'll tell you what, I loved the taste of spring water. But I would never drink a case of it in one sitting. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the truth from the false. Okay, so we may we may admit to ourselves that drinking is really bad, especially when we're really sick in the morning. But we can't distinguish the truth from the false. We can't see the real truth. We can't see how much trouble we're in. We don't understand the obsession of the mind. We don't understand the allergy of the body. We don't understand that it's a spiritual solution. We don't see the truth from the false. If you go up to somebody who's just gotten his third DWI and said, why didn't you stop drinking at, the, at your second DWI? They're not going to understand the question. You know, they're, 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 it's not a question that they're going to be able to internalize because they can't differentiate the truth from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once uh, by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. So what happens with the alcoholic is emotionally, spiritually, mentally, they become increasingly uncomfortable when they're sober. They become increasingly anxious. They become increasingly depressed. They, 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 their problems pile up on them emotionally. And they see the alcohol as a solution or a treatment or a medication for that emotional, spiritual, or mental condition. Okay, so being restless, irritable, and discontented, that's, that's at the light end of the spectrum. Uh, when the alcoholic gets that way, that opens the door for the obsession of the mind, and they start to think, you know what takes care of that, restless, irritable, and discontent? You know, if I have two or three beers, I'm going to be good. And they don't see the truth from the false. They don't see that those two or three beers is going to lead to 50. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Everybody else is drinking. You know, all my other, everybody I know drinks. Why can't I drink? You know, it's, it, they're asking themselves the wrong questions. After they have succumbed to the desire again, uh, as so many do, okay, they started drinking again, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. That happened to me every day. Me too, Those brother. Morning, so sick. But I would swear, I would swear that I was never going to do it again, Monty. And you know what? By that afternoon, I was on my way to the liquor store. Mm-hmm. This happened again and again and again. I was caught in this cycle. Listen, I'm a smart guy. I'm also somebody that wants to feel good. This alcohol was poisoning me. I was drinking enough of it to be alcohol poisoned every single night. Yet I couldn't get off of this treadmill. I, I just couldn't do it. I didn't. Ha- I couldn't summon up the wherewithal to just stop, 
You know, Nancy Reagan had the big slogan back when I was drinking, just say no. <laughs> just say no. I mean, if I could have just said no, I would have said no a long time ago. I, saying no doesn't even come into the, the landscape. Yeah, that's okay for an elementary school kid who's never touched anything when his friend says, here, you want a beer. But other than that, other than that, yeah. it's useless information. Yeah, I mean, it is. It it's, is. It's, it's trying to stop a semi with a cobweb, something <laughs> like that, you know. Uh, this is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change or spiritual awakening uh, or spiritual experience, there's very little hope of his recovery. Now, this is a doctor saying he, he didn't put in here religious conversion experience, but that's what... They, that's what they were calling it back then. Mm-hmm, but right. unless someone can have an entire psychic change, conversion experience, there's little hope that they will recover. That's what he's saying as chief physician at the the best-known hospital for drug and alcoholism treatment in New York City. On the other hand, as strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, spiritual awakening, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. The rules are the recovery process. The rules are the things that they learned coming from the Oxford group that they needed to continue to do in their lives that created the atmosphere where the power of God could come in and offer that power to stay safe and protected from alcohol. Even today, it's very, very hard for me to talk along these lines because it's difficult to put an experience like this into, uh, into language. Mm-hmm. It's really something that needs to be experienced to, 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 to be able to describe well. How do you describe to a blind man the colors of the spectrum? You know what I mean? It's the same kind of thing. How do you describe to someone who's never had a spiritual experience what a spiritual experience is? It's very, very difficult, Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, it's very troubling when when, uh, you're talking in rehabs or detoxes or whatever, and you know you're just not getting through to them. They just don't understand what what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although, although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. That's absolutely true. It's still true today. Uh, Many doctors will try to treat the symptoms of alcoholism, the depression, the anxiety. They will try try to treat the symptoms with medication. But the symptoms always follow the illness. And if you really want to solve the problem, you need... You need to treat the illness, not necessarily all of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Now, symptom treatment is not the worst thing that can happen, but doctors can't treat the illness. They can only treat the symptoms. Mm -hmm. So 
back in the day, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous went around to a lot of doctors, and they, a lot of doctors had a buy-in. They got an alcoholic. They didn't try anything. They just sent them to AA. Nowadays, you're going to get doctors that are going to try all kinds of different pharmaceuticals on you. Uh, and you may go down uh, dead ends. You you may be treated appropriately. You 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 know the medication may be may be valid and appropriate. However, you might uh, you might have temporary symptoms because of the alcoholism and get caught up in a uh, in a long and protracted uh, you know uh, medication trail that really really is not very helpful for uh, your permanent recovery. Yeah, and I, I've seen that happen so many times. People that are, are brand new in recovery, and uh, some of them are still detoxing to some degree, and they go in and see a psychiatrist, and they're throwing medication at them. Well, of course they can't think straight. They, they still got tons of alcohol in their system. And then, then they get that out of their system, and now they're walking around on Thorazine. Yeah, the yeah. worst things you see is the benzos. Um, oh, yeah. The, you know, oh, you're an alcoholic here. You know, uh, have some Valium. You look nervous. Uh, I mean that is that is so inappropriate. Uh, now, if you follow if you follow the um, you know uh, the guidelines uh, in in the uh, in the manuals, you, you know the the the, cri- the illness criteria from some of the um, physician manuals, it may it may look appropriate to prescribe benzos to someone who has anxiety. However, uh, you know if if they're alcoholic, that's going to throw them back into one more relapse with alcohol, and that, and that can be deadly. Now, you know, not, not all doctors have treatment in addictions. They, they just don't. Some of them really do, but some of them really don't. And, uh, and it, it's, it's a large problem, and, and it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a problem I don't see a lot of people trying to address. Uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that all the doctors out there really care. I, th- I think they're, they're willing to follow uh, best practices as far as they're concerned with, uh, you know, the, the, the manuals and the criteria uh, for appropriate uh, drug prescription, uh, but you know uh, how how many of them uh, how many of them need to or want to study addictions enough to know that uh, they that this may be the most inappropriate drug to be giving someone uh, who has alcoholic tendencies. Again, you know, alcoholism is a misunderstood illness. It's misunderstood by doctors. It's misunderstood by psychiatrists. Misunderstood by alcoholics. It's misunderstood by twelve-step members. It's misunderstood by treatment professionals that treat you for it. It's it's a very very complicated uh, and unorthodox illness. But these guys got it, which is what's amazing. Uh-huh. But when they put this book together, uh, they really got they really had it. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I've had many men who, for example, worked for a period of months on some problem or business deal which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to that date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important uh, appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which caused men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. You know, there are two schools of thought. Uh, I believe for a long time the supreme sacrifice is suicide. Uh, some people have convinced me that the, the, su- the uh, supreme sacrifice is basically just to give up and keep drinking. Uh, hmm. One of those might be true in different situations. Mm-hmm. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable, 
we are familiar with this type. They're always going on the wagon for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. This would have painted me as a psychopath, by the way. <laughs> uh, there is the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There is the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. Uh, there is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. You know, there's been a lot of detail uh, uh, that has really expanded these ideas uh, by professionals uh, who've studied alcoholism over the years. And if you want to learn about these things, uh, probably the best place to go is some of the textbooks on alcoholism today. Many of them are, are really on the money. Mm -hmm. Then there are types entirely normal in every respect except the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, and friendly people. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. Okay, to be an alcoholic, this book says you need to develop the phenomenon of craving when you drink. Every once in a while, somebody will come along who's a heavy drinker who would just load up every once in a while and get in trouble uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and admit to being an alcoholic. And when you ask them, well, can you drink two? Oh, yeah, I can drink two. If I decide to drink five, I can drink five. I can have three. You know, I decided to go out and get drunk. <clears throat> Those type of people are heavy drinkers. They're not alcoholics. Alcoholics have to develop the phenomenon of craving, or else they don't fall under the non-professional designation uh, or description, moreover, of mm -hmm. the alcoholic in this book. This phenomenon, as we, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. So if you get the phenomenon of craving, you're set apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to su suggest is entire abstinence. So <laughs> to fight off the phenomenon of craving, you have to be abstinent. But being abstinent poses its own problem because you become obsessed with, uh, with the idea of drinking. So that really is the main problem of the alcoholic. And it says by any treatment with which we are familiar. Every once in a while you're going to see there's a new pill that will allow an alcoholic to drink normally. Mm -hmm. You've seen those, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, in the fine print, you usually see not for real alcoholics. <laughs> but, uh, but basically, you know, uh, I am an, al an alcoholic, Monty. I've been in recovery a long, long time. My first thought is, okay, there's a pill that will allow me to drink two drinks normally. That's wonderful. Uh, my first thought is, if I have 12 pills, that will allow me to drink 24 drinks normally. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I go. I go right there. I, I mean, I cannot have alcohol safely in any form at all. I don't care if there's a pill that they say will allow me to take two drinks safely. It is not worth uh, uh, the price I will have to pay if they're wrong. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. This immediate, immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. Um, you know, even today, uh, alcoholism is described by the American Medical Association as a chronically relapsing condition. Now, that's after Alcoholics Anonymous and all the recovery that's taken place in the last 70 years. 
Can you imagine before that? Uh, you know, not a, it's not a chronically relapsing disease. It's a terminal disease, they probably thought. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. <clears throat> About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought to me to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had been partially recovered from a gastric, uh, he, he, had, he, he had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be uh, a case of, in, of path, pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury, no wet brain. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but their all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. It talks in this, in this book about being reborn by the 12-step process. This is an example. You know, someone was practically a new human being after going the recovery process and being, uh, uh, being in recovery for a year. And I, you and I see this all the time. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and, deciding his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted bar and determined to die. He was rescued by a search, searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment was a waste of effort unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology, and we doubted even if that would have any effect. Uh, however, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He's not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is as fine a specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I love this paragraph. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. And it's signed William D. Silkworth. That was in subsequent editions. All right, that's that's the doctor's uh, that's the doctor's opinion, Monty. That the doctor's opinion is so important, so important. In fact, I was talking to uh, someone after uh, my uh, uh, meeting today, and. Uh, they said, where do I start in the book? And I, I remember, and it just popped out at me, you know, uh, many people start at page one. Wrong. <laughs> and uh, so I told them, like we were talking about, you know, you start with the Roman numerals and so forth. Uh, but boy, when you get to the doctor's opinion, so much of that tells me or, and tells many people I know, hey, you're not this awful, immoral, disgusting human being that God doesn't care about you have an issue here. You have a disease called alcoholism. You have an allergy. And when I was convinced of that, and when I read this, and I had to read the doctor's opinion several times, uh, it, a burden. I mean, I wasn't sober yet, but a burden just came off my shoulders. Yeah, you know, uh, so often uh, the alcoholic really thinks he's just, it's just a problem of, you know, 
a low morality. You know, like what a what a scumbag I am. You know, I mean, look at all the things that I do to people that I love. I'm horrible. I'm a scumbag. And then then you get exposed to the medical estimate, and you realize that this this is a situation that may be beyond your personal control. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I mean. Like, I'll give you this. I'll give you this for instance. Uh, they talk about in the second step being returned to sanity. If you follow the word origin of sanity, you'll find that it's not necessary. It didn't necessarily come from the psychological or medical field. It came from the legal field. All right, and if you search back, you'll find about 400 years ago, uh, the insanity defense was developed over in Europe. And what had happened was there was some stiff, stiff fines for stealing. And every once in a while, you would get uh, you would get someone who was uh, obviously uh, mentally impaired, you know, the the town idiot, okay, or whatever, mm-hmm. who obviously had some mental impairment, and he would steal an apple off of uh, you know the fruit vendor's cart and get arrested. And the punishment is like ten years in jail or banishment to Australia or something. You know, obviously the the punishment is 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 just uh, overboard for someone who can't understand the difference between right and wrong good and bad. They didn't have that capacity available because they, they were men- mentally challenged. Okay, So mm-hmm. the, judges, the, the judges, the magistrates, got tired of handing out these horribly stiff sentences to people that they just they didn't feel they deserved it. They, they didn't know what they were doing. So the insanity defense was formulated. Now, when they talk about being restored to sanity, if the alcoholic is not sane then they're not able at certain times to access the 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 right and wrong good and bad they they, they don't they're not responsible now you know there's going to be some people that are going to disagree with that but but if you can't access uh right thinking if you can't understand the difference between truth and false if you don't have access to that are you really responsible? And that's where that's where sanity comes in. We need to be restored to sanity. Being restored to sanity means being restored to uh, a right understanding. And uh, uh, it, you know, uh, again, I got to tell you, I did some some really bad things out there when I was drinking. Things I'm really not proud of. Looking back on it today. I might just have been doing the best I could do, <laughs> given I was suffering from something that was that was creating periods of insanity for me. Yeah, Does that make any sense? It ma- it makes complete sense. It almost sounds like the behavior of a sociopath. Well, you know, it, it painted me as a, as a sociopath because you know, in the morning I, I wanted to quit, and in the afternoon I was drunk. That, that's 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 a that's a pathology. Yeah, yeah, and I, I know I know of a young man who is a sociopath. He was very young. Uh, he'd reach his, he reached his hand inside the birdcage and just strangled the bird to death, and after he did that, he was they, they said, why'd you do that? And he said, I don't know. You know. Maybe he didn't have access to right, wrong. Maybe he didn't, he didn't have access to good and bad. He, yeah, because these were, the, these, these were foster parents, and he had not had a good upbringing at all. It was just, you know, very, very confused. And I was confused, of course, when I first got into the meetings because I had heard from some of the circles that I was in that it was about just having enough faith in God, just pray hard enough, 
Um, if you go out and drink, it's because you don't love God enough and, and stuff like that. And so I was sh- kind of shame based, you know. And so then when I heard this, when I read the doctor's opinion and I heard the the saying about uh, we're not we're not bad people trying to get well, we're sick people trying, you know, that thing. Um, it was, like I said, it was such a burden, such a burden, because now I had hope. Now I knew because the doctor said so. Um, I knew that there was a solution that just didn't have to do with my morality. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm in a, I'm in agreement with you one one hundred percent. And this book is basically um, uh, a textbook or or a, a, a recipe uh, for finding a faith that works. There, there's certainly mm-hmm. a lot of people who have really valid beliefs in God. They're they're uh, they're, they're fervently, you know, passionately uh, faithful. However, they're still drinking. You know, there was another key uh, to the, to this whole thing, and uh, Bill Wilson and the boys figured it out. Um, you know, through some trial and some error, and this is basically a spiritual path, uh, a set of spiritual disciplines and exercises that lead to a faith that works and works against alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So you know that that really is what the the big book is, and it, it's it's it, like any spiritual text. It's valid in any period of time. Uh, it's going to be valid five hundred years from now. People are going to be getting sober using the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I think you and I both we agree on don't change it. Absolutely not. Yeah. I, I I so agree with you. Yeah. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure once again. Uh, I know that many people that are listening have enjoyed this. Some of them may throw the book across the room. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, thank you so much. Monty, you're welcome. It's always a pleasure to be uh, a part of anything you do. Well, thank you, my friend. And uh, next week, more, more good big book stuff. Uh, We're going to really be, yeah, let's see here. We're going to be talking... uh, uh, with Chris uh, about um, Bill's story. And if you've never read Bill's story, you're going to get to learn a little bit about Bill Wilson, uh, what what this book, uh, which it's kind of limited because there's a whole lot more about him than what's in here, but you're going to get to learn a little bit about his personality, about his, his alcoholism, uh, about his uh, relationship with Debbie Thatcher, and uh, just a whole bunch of great stuff. So, you don't want to miss next week. And uh, don't forget the uh, Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders, September 10th through the 13th in Cape Cod. Follow the links on uh, Take12Radio.com on our links page. And, uh, hey, we'll see you guys next week, I think. If God, God willing and the creek don't rise, Chris. That's right. <laughs> All right, my friends. Until our next broadcast when we walk through the big book. I'm wishing God serenity for you. Bye-bye. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. (laughs) 